Oh, what a beautiful day we are having so far, isn't it? If you were with us earlier this morning at the sunrise service out at the city lake, we watched that sun rise up and its beauty. It just was an awesome time to be out together singing and worshiping and praising God. And now we're here together again, just celebrating the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to welcome you. Um, if you're new to the church or if you're visiting with family, we are glad that you're here and you're joining us. And uh, for those that are online as well that are watching, we're just thankful that we've got the ability to share with you while you are there. We talk about the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and it was probably, how do you describe that? Well, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. It's, it's probably unbelievable for some people. It's unthinkable. Others, they would say it's just incredible. It's incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. And yet, the truth is, it happened. That on that Sunday morning, as dawn was beginning to break, something tremendous took place just north of Jerusalem, outside the city gates and the wall there. And a tomb that had once held the life of a man who had been crucified on the cross, all of a sudden it was empty, and the stone that had been put in its place was rolled away, and there was an angel that was there seated on that stone. The guards that were around, they were terrified, and they fainted, as our kids' video said, as if they were like dead men. I think there are a lot of obstacles that people put in their place when they begin to talk about the resurrection. We just don't want to believe that somebody could actually die and come back to life. And so we've got all of our excuses, we've got all of our reasons, we have all of our scientific evidence, but sometimes the miraculous, well, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. It's not sometimes the miraculous. Always the miraculous goes beyond what is normal or conceivable by human understanding. And that's what took place that morning. Something that had never been done before, all of a sudden, happens. A lot of people get hung up on this point of the resurrection of Jesus. But it is the most important aspect of our faith in Jesus Christ is that he not only died for our sins, but that he rose from the dead. And if there were no resurrection, we are told that we would still be in our sins because there is the power in that that gives all authority to his death and to his ability to say, your sins are forgiven. It all rests on this one moment in time, the resurrection of Jesus as I said, there are a lot of obstacles that kind of are put in place that, that hinder us from understanding the truth that when death comes, there's life. That death is not necessarily the end. So I want to look at a few of the obstacles that may have been there that day as we kind of go through the Scriptures, and we'll look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and the story of His resurrection. The first one is this, well, who's going to guard the tomb in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
therefore ordered the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud, they said, will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. It's interesting to note here that the chief priest and the Pharisees are getting together on Saturday that day of of rest, that day of Sabbath, because they have remembered some of the things that have transpired in Jesus' testimonies and in his preaching and in his ministry, and they remembered that he had said something about coming back to life. It's interesting to know that they are keenly aware, even more so than the disciples were, because they were for sure thinking that he's going to happen, something's going to happen to get him out of that tomb. And so they want to make sure he stays there. His disciples, they're surprised that Sunday morning. They had forgotten all about the fact that he said he would rise again. And even when they go and they notice that the tomb is empty, they're bewildered. They're frustrated. They're upset. And and the ladies go away crying and weeping. and, And the fellas, they just don't understand. Even when they go inside the tomb, what's happened here? But the Pharisees and these chief priests... They were ahead of the game, it seems like, because before Sunday comes, on Saturday, they make their appearance before Pilate, and they want to address this. And so it's interesting to note that the Pharisees are the ones who are in cahoots with the chief priest and not the Sadducees. So there are two ruling bodies that made up the Sanhedrin together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, they were comfortable in the fact that Jesus was dead. And the reason is because they don't believe in any type of resurrection, let alone that Jesus would rise from the dead. And so they were confident, he's dead, he's dead, and that's it, everything's over. But the Pharisees, they had this understanding that there is a resurrection of life even after death because the day of judgment's going to come and we're all going to stand before God on that judgment day and, and we'll live there. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection at all. And so they understand this. They were trying to decipher what Jesus had said there in John chapter 2, verse 19 is recorded. He said, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So they knew that the Pharisees did. They knew that he was talking about his own resurrection. But how could they convince Pilate, the Roman governor, that there is a resurrection from the dead? So they figured out that we need to go before him, and they asked him that, that, Pilate, we need to secure this, because Pilate, after all, he knew that when a man was dead, a man was dead, and especially if the Romans killed him, they were very good at making sure somebody was dead. But in Matthew chapter 27, they appear before Pilate, and they decide to give him a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie. They want to make mention that the tomb is probably going to be empty, but it's because his disciples will probably steal it. So they tell him what happens. And so it says there in verse 63 of Matthew 27, Sir, we remembered how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, 
lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. I'm sure by this time Pilate has had quite enough with these chief priests and these Pharisees. He's done with them. Matter of fact, his wife had even pleaded with him not to even entertain anything with this man Jesus, but he, he did this to keep the, the uprising from taking place. But these crazy priests, he doesn't want any more to do with them, and so he finally tells them, you have a guard of security, guys. You've got your soldiers. Rome has leased you some soldiers to take care of your temple, so why don't you take your soldiers and you go guard the tomb? I, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. So that's what they do. They take their guards that were Roman soldiers, by the way, but they were being used to protect things within the temple. And they took them to the tomb where Jesus was buried because they understood it was by the man of Joseph of Arimathea. It was his tomb. And so they set guard there overnight to make sure that nobody came to steal the body away. Well, that's one obstacle. Now there's a guard set in place. So how, are the, how is this going to come to a, a fulfillment of the resurrection when you've got Roman soldiers there with you? The second obstacle we discover in our narrative in the Bible is this. Who's going to move the stone for us? So we turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was passed, that's matter when, when Saturday's over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, well, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? You see, it was early Sunday morning when the ladies were kind of gathering the spices together and and, and they had prepared those things on Friday evening after Joseph had brought them, and, but there wasn't time enough on Friday evening to do that. So they wanted to make sure that they got to Jesus' body to make sure he was properly taken care of for his burial. See, it was just a couple nights before, on Friday evening, when Joseph and Nicodemus were able to get the body down off the cross. But the sun was beginning to set, and night was coming on, and the Sabbath was about there because it starts at 6 o'clock. And after 6 o'clock on Friday, you can't do any kind of labor. So they wanted to make sure that he was buried before then. And in their haste, Joseph and Nicodemus, all they'd had the opportunity to do was to wrap his body in a linen cloth, put him inside the tomb, and roll the stone away. So the ladies had, had taken the spices that Nicodemus brought, and they, they were going to prepare them that night and then come back on Sunday at the most convenient time that they could do it. Now, tombstones were very heavy. I mean, they're large, and you just don't normally have an opportunity to push them out of the way. The way the stones are laid out there against it, they're, they're put in a groove in the rock, and they're rolled downhill to cover the stone, to cover the entrance into that, that tomb. But it's not to keep people from coming out. Normally the stone is rolled away, rolled in there to keep the predators like animals and stuff from going in and ravaging the bodies, or maybe grave robbers to come in and steal things. So it's a big stone that's put there. But Joseph and Nicodemus, they didn't seal it. There was no need to seal it from their perspective. They just rolled the stone to keep his body comfortable in there. But the Roman soldiers now have put a seal 
on that stone. And you better not break a Roman seal because there's penalties when it comes to that. You see, when we think about opening that tomb, the ladies hadn't considered that. As they're making all their preparations, and now they're on their way that morning, and they're thinking, oh no, well, how are we going to get this stone open and move it away so we can get in and take care of the body? It wasn't too long before they found out that they weren't going to have to worry about that. They probably didn't have a clue that the guards were there. Otherwise, they would have probably said, hey, when we get there, let's see if one of the guards would open the stone for us so we can get in and and take care of the body. But knowing the Roman guards, and they had been given orders, nobody was going to enter into that tomb no matter what, especially on this day, because that was the cue on the third day he would rise I guarantee you the soldiers weren't going to let these ladies in. That wasn't enough to frustrate these poor women. The earth then begins to tremble and shake. And that morning, just as it did on Friday afternoon when Jesus died. Let's look at Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing were white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. Something was definitely going on. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in an earthquake like me, you, you want to make sure that you, you take cover somewhere, or you go and you want to grab something that's going to be secure, that's immovable, because the ground beneath your feet is shaking. Friday, they'd already experienced that. And there was a lot of talk because a lot of things had happened at that earthquake. Matter of fact, in the temple, the curtain there that separates the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in two, they assume, from the earthquake, from the top to the bottom. But in hindsight, we know better it was God. Matthew explains that there had been this great earthquake and that the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and he was like lightning, brilliant and bright and radiant and his clothes were as white as snow. And when you look upon him and all of a sudden these guards who felt the shimmer and the shake and and saw everything that happened before their eyes and they see this angel come and, and roll the stone away, they fainted. I think I probably would have fainted too. But that's what happens when you encounter a mighty angel from heaven. So if you remember the events connected with the crucifixion, which had no doubt been talked about amongst the guards, because it was a strange and a weird execution for them that night. I mean, matter of fact, it was in the middle of the day from 12 till 3. It was dark over the land. The sun was, was gone somehow. And then when the earth began to shake, and the fellow on there, when he says it is finished, he's dead. They had talked about it. Matter of fact, one of the, the guards, there's a centurion, he, he even made the statement that this fellow was probably the son of God. Surely he had to have been, because there's no way all these things would have transpired had we not just seen the son of God killed. The earthquake probably wasn't just one of any ordinary sense because the epicenter was right there at the tomb, and they knew it. 
and they knew why it was happening, because this angel came and moved this stone. I think there's a little bit of of irony in, in this contrast between man's elaborate preparations to stop God from doing something, and God simply, just with a move of his hand, he eradicates everything in place. How long will it take us to realize that there's no way that we can stop God when he is on mission? And his purpose will be accomplished. Matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, it was told that, that his body would not see decay. So in Psalm, 20, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, the question is asked why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I like that in Psalm. God in heaven laughs. He laughs at our ineptitude to keep him from doing things. He laughs at our ability to think that we're going to be able to control things when he is going to do as he pleases. Because it's all based upon his anointed one, his Messiah, the one that he is sending into this world to establish his kingdom and his reign forever on his holy hill in Mount Zion of heaven. And who are we to get in his way? Nothing at all creation was going to keep Jesus in the grave, and he would rise to life in spite of all that was set in place to keep him in the grave. Even the stone wasn't enough to keep him there. But there's another obstacle that we face even today. The question is, who will hide the truth? Really, that's what it comes down to. Who wants to hide the truth? In Matthew 28, 11 through 15, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Lies. Lies. I mean, that's what it was, was lies. And it amazed me how little it takes to get someone to lie for you. Just a little bit of money, and they'll do just about anything. However, I'm sure that the amount of money that the priest paid the soldiers that day was quite a bit more than they paid Judas to betray him and surrender him over to him. Roman soldiers aren't bought easily, but these were. But what if Pilate hears about this little deception, which has carried with it the fictitious report that they were asleep 
and the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. For a soldier to be caught sleeping while he's on duty, it carried with it a very severe penalty. And yet these guys are willing to say that they were sleeping? This isn't just a slap on the hand penalty. It was a deathly result, usually, penalty. But they're willing to say it. They must have been paid quite a bit. You see, the Greek historian... Polybius, he describes what happens. He says, if a Roman soldier is found guilty of falling asleep on duty, he is punished by fustuarium. That's an interesting, interesting word, fustuarium. What it, is, what it is, it's a punishment that is carried out by his fellow soldiers as well. The tribune, they take this cudgel, which is a club, and he lightly touches the man who has been guilty of sleeping on duty. And then all of a sudden, all the other soldiers, they grab clubs and sticks, whatever they have handy, and they beat that man to death. I don't think I'd ever want to fall asleep while on duty, would you? But these guys are willing to lie to perpetuate the story that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. How much money would it take for you to put your life in danger? But that's what they did. They willingly put their lives in danger. Sometimes the tribune would get the whole group of guys if it wasn't just one. And we know that there was a group of soldiers here that day. And what he would do, he wouldn't kill all of them but he would kind of have them parade in front, and then he would just choose 10% of those guys, not knowing who they would be. So it's just a chance. And then 10%. It didn't matter if it was a full legion of soldiers. 10% would then be killed. And these men were willing to lie. Even to this day, soldiers know not to fall asleep when on duty. For surely, even in America, there are punishments and consequences for that. But the chief priest, they assured these guys that if this ever makes its way to, to Pilate, if governor hears about it, we'll take care of Pilate. You don't have to worry about anything. Well, maybe Pilate can be bought off too. What do you think? Well, they had promised them. No harm would come to them because they would take care of Pilate. Now, they, they accepted that. And, and as you and I have probably discovered, for enough money, men will be willing to do anything, even put their life on the line for a paycheck. So these soldiers, they took the money and they began to propagate the biggest fraud that was ever wrought upon humanity, that the creator of all heaven and earth came back to life. Whatever else may be said, we know that from the time of Justin Martyr, about a hundred years later, the story of his disciples stealing the body was still being sent out from Jerusalem. They were doing their best to keep people from accepting the fact that Jesus was alive. And to that end, there has been a perpetuation of lies through the years that even in our generation, there are people who do not believe that Jesus came back life. 
Some suggest that the apostles and the others who saw him, it was just hallucinating and some visions rather than the reality. But there's a final obstacle that I think that we have to overcome in this. Who will believe by faith? Over the next 40 days, Jesus would appear to a variety of people. Sometimes it might be one individual, or other times it might even be a group of 500 in one setting that he would appear before them and talk to them and teach them. Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 through 10 says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. These ladies could not wait to get back and see the disciples and let them know that Jesus they have just seen and that he's alive and he wants to meet them up in Galilee, and so we need to get ready. And so with excitement, they run back to tell them this story. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Mark records it this way in chapter 16. He says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and and they mourned and they wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. Mary, you, you, you've, you've had to have been dreaming. There's no way. We, we just can't believe that he is alive. We saw him die. And after these things, then it says he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. We like to believe what we see with our own eyes, don't we? Just hearing it from somebody doesn't make it so that it's real, even though they may have never lied to us before. This has got to be just unbelievable that he would be alive. But John goes and he says this in chapter 20. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We've not seen him with our eyes. We've not heard him with our ears. We've not touched him with our hands. And yet we have gathered this morning because we believe he is alive. What a blessing it is for us. And that's what Jesus has said. But some, there's just still something about our eyes. We like to see things. We like to know it's there. And we trust our vision rather than we trust just something that's out there. Sometimes you just have to see it to believe it. And we are so trusting with our eyes. And yet our eyes 
can deceive us. Illusionists, they make a huge profit off deceiving the eyes of their audience. There are these things called stereograms, the magic eye pictures. Do you remember them? I put one up here on the screen. Do you see it? Is the Chevy. <laughs> no. This one, if, if, you, if you have the ability to look beyond what your eyes are telling you, what you will see is a 3D image coming to life of the crucifixion scene of Jesus. He's right there in the middle. There, back behind there, there's two criminals on crosses, and there's others that are gathered around in front of him. But there he is on the middle. Can you see it? How about this, this next one? Do you see that one? I mean, right there in the center, you, you, you've got to see him. He, he's there with his hands spread out. There's an empty tomb behind him. And he's resurrected. And there's the glory that's, that's shining around him. Why don't we trust our eyes? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11:1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Sometimes our eyes deceive us. And those who had gone to that tomb that morning, they recognized He is not there, He is gone. And the angels that are there speaking to them, telling them, He is risen. Don't you remember? Just as He said, He would not be in this grave long. And then they have the conversation with, Mary has a conversation with a gardener, she thinks, and turns out it's Jesus, and she doesn't realize it until He speaks her name and says, Mary. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in this passage of Scripture, it's, it's, it's pivotal to our faith. So Paul wants to use this to help us understand why the resurrection is so important. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether that it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, and after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You see, it is to this one the resurrected Son of God, to whom we come each and every Sunday to worship, to honor, to submit our lives to His will. It is is to this one who was sacrificed that Passover as the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. It, It is to this one who, in His equality with God, He didn't consider His glory a thing that He should hang on to, but He willingly surrendered it and left it to come into this world and to become like you and me, a mere man. But not just any man, a servant of men. And He gave up everything there so that He could then become a sacrifice for us to pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins. It is to this one that... that established there in the upper room a new covenant. A covenant was made by His blood and by the giving of His body, thereby offering us the forgiveness of our sins and the right to be called sons of God. So to this, we partake of what we call the Lord's Supper. This covenant that He established. If you have yours with you, would you begin to open it up and recognize that when we partake of the bread 
It represents the body of Jesus who was broken there on that cross. Substituting Himself in our place so that you and I don't have to die. When we drink of the fruit of the vine, it is in a remembrance of what He did in giving His life's blood for our salvation. And He enacted this covenant the same way He did with the covenant that He first had with the people of Israel, through death and through the blood of a lamb. Jesus is that lamb. John the Baptist understood that the day that he baptized him. When he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we remember that this Easter morning. His body was broken for us to rise again. His blood was shed upon a cross because death had to come. But the power of His covenant, the power of His sacrifice rests solely in His resurrection because no longer will there ever need to be another sacrifice because He completed it once and for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today and the joy of knowing what Jesus has done for us. May we celebrate the life that is everlasting because He conquered the grave and hell. And Father, He has now prepared a way for us to enter into Your presence, holy and righteous, not by anything that we have done, but by His authority that You've given to Him, by the power that He was able to conquer the grave, and life now can be everlasting. And it's in Him that we pray and we're so grateful for. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.